0: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing
1: Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next
0: adventure on Fishing Booker.
1: Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history, and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is Aaron Kindle, your host. Today, we are running solo. So to speak, at least myself, uh, Drew Youngdike is out on the road. He is doing some work filming uh, a project about one of our campaigns where we're trying to prevent Asian carp from invading the Great Lakes. And he's out doing a film project, talking with the stakeholders and different folks who are engaged in that. So I'm going to go it alone today as far as the hosting duties are concerned, but of course, not entirely alone. I have uh, the privilege today of having a a good friend and a colleague on with me, really smart guy who's going to help enlighten us on a couple of different things today. His name is Dave Wilms. He's the Senior Director of Western Wildlife and Conservation for the National Wildlife Federation. And he's also, I'm going to give a little plug, he's also the host of his own podcast, or at least the co-host. He's got a couple of other co-hosts. Uh, the podcast is called Your Mountain. It's a great podcast if you're interested in really diving into the details of what conservation policy looks like, how it relates to the hunting and fishing community, where the effects. He has a couple of great co-hosts that are also great guys, Mike McGrady and, and Nephi Cole. Just folks that, that really get this stuff and, and can decipher it and, and break it down for for the layperson and help them understand so we're we're lucky to have Dave today. How's it going, Dave? Oh, I'm I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, and and Dave, one of the things we always start with is just uh, talking a little bit about what you've been doing outside lately. How you've been scratching the itch to be outside and hunt and fish or just backpack or do whatever you do in the summer. So tell us a little bit about your latest adventures.
2: Oh man, how much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, so I use the summers to prep for the falls. Right? My my big passion is hunting hunting in the fall at big country, big mountains, backcountry hunting, and so. I spend my summers doing a lot of backpacking. Uh, I do a lot of fishing river trips. Like last week I did a a float trip with uh, my family and a bunch of other families. And for that, I took my daughters out on a backpacking trip down in your neck of the woods. Well, kind of Northwest of your neck of the woods, uh, but in Colorado and, um, and I've got a, big trip planned in the Beartooths here in a couple of weeks to do uh, about 60 miles of the Beartooths tooths uh, backpacking and fishing so uh, you know they're in Montana and Wyoming um, so yeah I it's I have this philosophy every summer I just call it no wasted weekends like get out get after it spend as much time in the outdoors as possible uh, and I hit it pretty hard
1: Yeah, you do. I I hear some of your your stories and and we talk a little bit about when you're coming south to Colorado to the big mountains land. Uh, It's funny. My dad lives in Wyoming. I'm from Wyoming. My dad always calls Wyoming's, you know, God's country and is always uh, saying, oh, you need to come up here. I don't know why you're not up here. And I send him pictures and show him different things that I'm doing. And so we have a running debate who has the best country. I think there's clearly a lot more people. (laughs) <laughs> in Colorado but a lot of good country in both places uh I'll just share a little bit I, I've been I'm, I'm a lot like Dave but maybe not quite as hardcore with the planning for the fall and other things but uh, this year uh, my boy my 15 year old boy got a muzzleloader tag uh, for elk season in Colorado uh, any any season after the one you got that is an antlerless tag you're eligible for as a as a youth so uh, we, we applied for a, a, a muzzleloader tag this year and got it, but we've never hunted muzzleloader. So we've been starting to go through the rounds, uh, figuring out, you know, what ammunition to use, how, how we're going to do this, learn, learn the ropes a little bit on muzzleloader. So we've had that going. Um, as you know, Dave, I asked you for a little advice on a couple of those things. And then, uh, obviously I live right here on the Arkansas river don't not on the river, but right next to the river. And, uh, fish a lot here and recently went down to Southern Colorado and and got some fishing on the Canejos river, which was really awesome. Uh, so spending a lot of time just, just fishing and kind of thinking about the fall and getting ready and spend as much time as I can outside to cure the COVID blues. So can we have a,
2: can we have a tag competition here? Like how many, how many, uh, big game tags are you going to have in your pocket this fall?
1: Uh, probably only two I struck out pretty hard uh this year i didn 't uh, i didn 't get my Wyoming antelope tags like I have every year for about the past five years, and neither did my son so that was a bummer. My son got this tag i 'll have a i 'll have a a cow tag my son didn 't get his deer tag or his antelope tag here in here in Colorado either. They changed the rules a little bit uh this year how they did it and also 10% more people applied for the draws than, than the years before. So the odds got long, but I'll have a couple different elk tags this year. And, and, and as will he, hopefully, hopefully we don't even need, need to get him the over the counter one uh, because he gets something in that muzzleloader season. But uh, so sorry. I know, I know, I know you're going to win this battle. You uh, I do most years. Yeah,
2: well, it's not I don't actually view it as competition. I I only bring it up this year. I'm usually like you a couple two three tags in the pocket. I go out elk deer pronghorn every year this year. I've got three prong three pronghorn tags. Five deer tags, four of them are doe, white tail, and then a um, mule deer uh, buck tag, and then three elk tags, a, a general elk tag, and two reduced price cow calf elk tags. But he, it, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. It, <laughs> it sounds like I'm just this, like, Man, bloodthirsty... you
1: know where to go get some meat. <laughs> yeah, it like the, successful.
2: sounds like I'm this bloodthirsty animal, right? Uh, but no, so I live in Wyoming and the first lady of our state started up this year, started up a hunger initiative in the state. Uh, and she really focused the hunger initiative on getting wild game into into families that are in need of food. And so she's partnered with some of the conservation and sporting groups in the state of Wyoming and some um, meat processors in the state, game and fish department. She got a couple of, com- was able to auction a couple of game and fish commissioner tags to raise money to help pay for processing. And so, you know, with the economy tanking the way it ha- has been, a lot of people are out of jobs right now. Um, it just seemed like, you know, I have a I have a skill set, right? I have this, <laughs> I have a They didn't give skillset, you any additional set, right? tags for that though, right? They, no, these are all legal tags, right? No additional tags. But I, I feel like I'll take advantage of that skill set. I'm going to, obviously I'm going to feed my own family, but I'm going to take this year as an opportunity to try and help feed a bunch of other families through and supporting the, the uh, first lady's initiative, hunger initiative here. So that's why I have a pocket full of tags, you know, something like... Yeah,
1: just an excuse to get out a bunch more. Once you've filled three or four of them, I'm sure your family's going to be gung-ho for you to go help feed the, the masses there. <laughs>
2: well, it, it's all penciled out. I think I don't think it's going to take a lot of extra trips to fill
1: the tags. Well, good. I know, I know where to come and get some extra meat if I uh, come up short. That's a fact. Uh, well, well, good, Dave, let's, let's transition a little here. Uh, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is because, you know, in my experience, you're one of the sharper minds on, on a lot of the issues we think about policy wise and we work on at NWF and through the sporting lens. And, you know, uh, recently we just did a report, uh, called unchecked energy development, the future of hunting across the West and it included some of what we wanted to talk about today. Um, There's a couple of different bills out there that are designed to help reduce or eliminate some of the harmful, what we believe are harmful energy leasing and development practices. And uh, we wanted to kind of unpack those a little bit for our audience today. You know, there's, there's millions and millions of acres out west that are leased for energy development. A lot of the same lands we we hunt and fish on and, and we know and love and spend a lot of our time on. So it's really important, especially for the Western sportsman and woman to to understand some of these issues. And I think, Dave, you're the perfect guy to help us break this down in, in layperson terms and really give us a good high-level idea of, A, what's going on, and B, you know, how people might be able to get engaged and, and follow this stuff a little bit better. So. We're gonna talk about two main things. Um, There's a couple of bills out there. Uh, One is actually already introduced. uh, Senator Cortez Masto introduced a bill that was about uh, curbing low and and no potential leases. And we'll get into what that means. And then we've recently learned that uh, Senator Tester, a real friend of the sporting community up in Montana, is gonna be releasing a bill on the practice of non-competitive leasing. And so we'll talk about those a little, but Dave, why don't you give us a a broad overview? If you would just talk about how leasing works, what, what happens, uh, how, how do leases come available for producers to, to bid on them, to, to, you know, to, to buy them and, uh, and actually start producing, just give us the high level overview if you would. Yeah, you
2: bet. Um, let me, let me start with this because a lot of people might not know this part before we get to how the details of the leasing work. First of all, leasing, happen, leasing happens on, uh, on a mineral state owned by the federal government. So if you're a private landowner and you own your private mineral rights, this doesn't apply to you. Right. But, yeah, good point. Uh, but also when you're thinking of the BLM or the Forest Service, you think about it, most of us think about it in the terms of surface acres, like the places we go and recreate on surface acres and the 247 million acres that the BLM owns surface acre wise. But the subsurface estate that's owned by the federal government doesn't match up perfectly with that, that surface ownership, meaning there are 700 million acres that the BLM manages for leasing of a mineral estate in the United States and that includes acres that are under private lands that might be owned by the federal government. So you could be in some places a private landowner that owns your surface but doesn't own your subsurface and the federal government might own might own that subsurface and then the leasing applies. So really when you think about this, it, 700 million acre estate that the BLM is managing is about 30 percent of the land area of the country. So this impacts a, I mean, this impacts a, a large, large area. We're not talking about and obviously the West is large area, uh, but this impacts uh, much more than just what you'd think of as the places where you recreate uh, on public lands. That's so a
1: good point, Dave. And, you know, I think one thing I want to clarify real quick, too, for folks who don't know, maybe they're listening in the East and don't have BLM lands. BLM stands for Bureau of Land Management. They are the folks who manage the entire mineral estate, uh, This the mineral estate on do they? I don't think they manage the offshore, but the, the onshore mineral so estates the BLM manages.
2: Correct. It's the entire onshore. And I assume for purposes of today's discussion, we're really going to be focusing on onshore. Yeah. Uh, offshore is a, a completely different issue. It's it's pretty complicated. Um, it, it's different than what we're talking about. It's And it's done a little bit differently. But yeah, the BLM handles all onshore leasing. And that includes leasing on... Um, Forest Service lands, uh, Bureau of Indian Fair lands, uh, other federal agencies that might have surface owner ownership, uh, the BLM is largely responsible for the managing the mineral estate.
1: I want to place one thing in people's minds as they're thinking about this. Um, BLM, like the Forest Service, many other federal land management agencies has a multiple use doctrine. Uh, so... While they do lease lands, that's not their only charge. Um, they they have multiple different things they're supposed to do, you know, uh, in, in, their, in their, I don't know, doctrine, or I, I'm not sure exactly what I would call this, but it, they have the language sustain the health, diversity, and productivity of public lands for the use and enjoyment of present and future generations, which means throughout whatever they do, they've got to keep you know, enough lands productive for wildlife, usable by people. Uh, they they got to keep that going in perpetuity. So just keep that in your mind as you're thinking about the things we bring up today. Yeah.
2: And what you're talking about is all laid out in the Federal Land Policy and Management Act of 1976. So this was the law that that established uh, the multiple use mandate and management scheme of BLM lands. It's the BLM guiding Document like the the federal law that guides BLM
1: management, and it has a fun acronym, FLIPMA. FLIPMA. Yep, yep. You'll you'll you might hear that. Our listeners might hear that. So that's what Dave just touched on there.
2: Yeah. Um, so you want me to talk a little bit about how the leasing of those lands works? Just
1: yeah, dive in. Take it. You know, let's think about it from from the line of thinking that folks who maybe don't understand any of this or haven't really digested what this all means and, and just a general overview of how leases come to be.
2: Yeah, you bet. So leases, and and I apologize, I've got, <laughs> yeah, this is a podcast where I've got a sleeping dog in the background that dreams when, when he sleeps and he sometimes barks <laughs> while he dreams. So <laughs> just brace yourself. No, for some podcasts some are in a special barking.
1: place right now with COVID. Uh, lots of people with kids and dogs and all kinds yeah, of fun that's news. exactly right.
2: Anyway, so back to the topic at hand, right? So the leasing is all guided by, there's a series of federal laws that guide this, and we won't go into the, the detail, but it's generally authorized by the Mineral Leasing Act of 1920. And the, the, the guiding principle is, if the federal government identifies lands that have the potential to produce oil and, and gas, then you know, they're, they're, they should be leasing those lands. Right. So the idea is, uh, and I'll just really quickly talk about how a lease goes through a process in today's uh, terms. If you want to lease a, a acreage, first the acres are nominated. Anybody can nominate acres, it and it can be. It's frequently done anonymously uh, to to uh, contact the BLM and say, "Hey, I want you to lease these acres." The BLM is going to look at those at those acres what they 're supposed to do under the law is look at those and make a determination of whether there 's a likelihood of of oil and gas resources there uh, they 're also supposed to do a, at least a cursory environmental analysis uh, of what the impacts of uh, of leasing might be um, on the human environment or the natural environment and then it, and then they say, okay, we're going to propose a certain number of acres based on the nomination. We're going to propose some acres for leasing. Uh, there's an opportunity for the public to weigh in on that proposal before the leases are issued, weigh in on that proposal and protest it for various reasons after that protest period ends. Then you, then you have the actual lease. And the way the leasing works is so you've had it nominated, you've gone through this initial review, it's put up for, for bid. And, and, uh, under um, under the Federal Onshore Oil and Gas Leasing Reform Act of 1987, all public lands that are available for oil and gas leasing have to be offered first by competitive leasing, and so that's what gets to this next one. You have a competitive bidding process, like an auction, right, to to buy these leases and oil and gas companies will bid, they'll place place bids and the highest bid wins. Right. And, and gets, uh, gets that acre, put those acres under lease. Those leases last for 10 years. And if they start producing, they can be renewed. And some some of these leases have been renewed multiple times for decades because there's ongoing production. Um, when when they acquire the lease, they have annual rental payments they have to make that start out. I think it's a buck fifty an acre for the first five years, and after that goes up to two bucks an acre for the remaining five years. And then if they start to produce, then they have to pay royalties uh, back to the BLM. the The lease. The leases that are um, uh, the, the fees paid by oil and gas companies for leases about half of that goes to the federal government and half of it goes back to the state in which the lease uh, uh, where the the land situ- was situated where the lease occurred same thing goes for the royalties when royalties are generated because oil and gas is developed about just over half of that goes to the federal government and just slightly under half of that goes back to the state. So it turns out to be a revenue generator for, for states as well as the federal government. Um, but that's the, that's the basic. Now the, the very next piece, and then I'll stop for a second. The very next piece is, so you go through this competitive process and there's a minimum bid. I should mention that there's a minimum bid, $2 an acre. Uh, if, Nobody bids on a parcel of land during the auction that's up that's been nominated for lease. There's a secondary process that becomes available and it's called this non-competitive bid process, where for two years after that lease, anybody could come in and say, I want to buy that acreage that was not bid on. I'll pay my buck fifty an acre. And so can, you can just walk into a BLM office pay a buck 50 an acre and 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 buy up that lease for 10 years and that's the non-competitive piece of this after the bidding has
1: occurred that's a good segue dave um you know about almost a quarter of the leases that the blm uh sells are issued uh through this non-competitive process and so that can be a, a lot of acreage um and Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about what the issue is when, when that happens. Um, and then let's add one more thing, Dave, how, how big the, just talk about the, the range, uh, leases can go from, you know, a few acres to sometimes 5,000. Uh, I don't know what, what's the ceiling that you know of, how, how big can leases be?
2: Oh man, I don't know. I don't know what the ceiling is. I really don't. Um, but they can get big. Um, and and you know there could be multiple parcels put up right do you do you mean individual leases because the, the one yeah, thing is you could sell yeah yeah but but you could have an individual lease where maybe you know somebody buys up 5000 acres and then adjacent to that lease another 4000 acres goes and adjacent to that lease another 500 acres goes i mean and it, and it yeah. s- snowballs from there you could theoretically you, you could you could lease up you know 50000 square acres you know, uh, if you know if all the bidding worked out, uh, you know, and and all those adjacent parcels are are scooped up. So I don't even know that it matters what yeah. the size of the individual leases. The you know you have sure. you still have that ability to have the aggregate be you know covering tons of adjacent. Uh, acres.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to give folks a little sense of the kind of landscape we're talking about. One, eight, one lease can be quite large. Many leases together, as you mentioned, can cover almost landscape scale type of type of area. Um, so, you know, a lot of the thing with this with this deal is that the idea of royalties and uh, how how the States generate income, how the treasury generates income from leasing is to offer a fair return to taxpayers uh, off of these leases. And that's one of the big problems here because, you know, for the BLM to prepare these leases, Uh, to monitor them, to put them up for auction and then to hold them for sale, even after they haven't been uh, bought at a competitive price that takes a lot of administrative costs. uh, And often there's not a great return on that. So unpack that a little for us, Dave, what that looks like as far as the non-competitive process and why it's maybe not the best deal for, for taxpayers. And then, you know, perhaps what it might mean for the sporting community. Um.
2: Uh, sure. Yeah. From a, from a taxpayer standpoint, uh, I, I would, let me hone in on a little example for you. I'll bring you back to my home state of Wyoming to give you kind of a tax, what it means from a taxpayer standpoint. Last year, uh, or might've been the year before last, but anyway, it's been pretty recent. The, uh, $61 $61 million of Wyoming's budget came from their share of federal mineral, mineral lease sale revenue, right? $61 million is not a small amount of money at right? these lease sales. Some of these leases are selling for tens of thousands of dollars an acre. Right. So it's, it, it's not insignificant. Uh, in, 2019, so you take that $61 million. In 2019, when you look at the non-competitive, or I'll say non-competitive, meaning the, those acres that, were, that weren't bid on, and I'll combine that also with acres that were bid on, but went for the statutory minimum of $2 an acre. That accounted for about a quarter one quarter of all of the acres leased in the state of Wyoming that year. And I told you, like I said, $61 million came to the budget from leases. Guess how much came from that one quarter of land? About a quarter million dollars. So, When you're talking about a a revenue standpoint, that turned out to be, you know, nine one thousandths of 1% of the overall state budget that year. That came from non-competitive and uh, uh, these non-competitive leases uh, and the the $2 minimum leases. So, here's the other piece of this that I think some people don't, well, most people don't realize. So, first of all, from a financial standpoint to the state, the money coming in from those is... Exponentially lower than money coming in from leases that are uh, for leased lands that actually have high oil and gas potential. Um, this, these areas are are not selling because there just really isn't any potential, and that's borne out in the facts. You look at them, and most of these leases never get developed. And in fact, when you're looking at the financial side, not only did not get developed, a lot of the companies that buy these leases stop paying their annual rental rates. And now the BLM has to go in and cancel those leases. And there are administrative costs to going through that process of canceling these leases that were never going to produce anything anyway. So they cancel them. And once the lease is canceled, guess what? Well, now somebody can come in and put those acres up for bid again. And then you go through that same process all over again, where now they're nominated and, and they go through the bid and nobody buys them and they they're bought up by a non-competitive. And then, and then maybe those don't get, those rental payments don't get paid and they have to get canceled and it becomes this cycle. Okay. So that's that first part of it, the financial piece. And then I think you asked, okay, what does it mean for sportsmen? Um, so here's what I'd, I'd say. And this is, this is, here's, this is, I'm providing you kind of my perspective on this. Right. I, I've been hunting now for 30 right right around 30 years. And in that time there are places I've hunted that have, that have been leased and have always been under lease and never developed. So in my mind, here's this the argument that that I always formally formulated in my mind is what's the harm? What's the harm in leasing these places if they're never actually going to be developed? Right. And, and, hey, it's generating a little bit of revenue. It, you know, it's not really harming me because it's not going to be developed. Um, what's the harm? Well, I'd say pause there and, and I'd look at it a slightly different way. And this requires kind of understanding how FLIPMA that we mentioned before, how the, federal, um, how the Federal Land Policy and Management Act, how that works. Um, but here, here's the deal. There are management plans under FLIPMA, the BLM management plans that have to be, um, you know, guiding documents for areas of land that have to be done every, well, they're supposed to be done a lot more regularly than, regularly than they are. I think they're updated sometimes 15, every 15 or 20 years. When you identify places that are leased, they can't be managed for any, really anything else. And... You know, I might go out there, you or I might not go out there and n- not see the nuances of what that impact might be. But here, here's what, what some of the nuances or what some of the impact could be. All right. You have a lease put in place for 10 years. Think about all the conservation groups out there that want to invest in habitat improvement projects. You know, mule deer is struggling all across the West, and we need to invest a lot of resources in habitat improvement and and other things to, to help with mule deer, among other species, but mule deer is a good example. Where are you likely as a conservation organization, or as a game and fish department, or heck, even as a federal agency, where are you likely to invest your limited resources to do these projects? Are you going to do it in places that have the potential because they're under lease, have the potential to be disturbed and developed in some way? Or are you going to do it someplace else where maybe there isn't a lease and and the likelihood of development is, is... Non existent because it hasn't been leased. I'd argue that most folks are going to look to invest their money in places that have the longest term return on that investment or the longest impact on that in, from that investment. And so they might be less likely to put that money on the ground in a place that's under lease. And you probably heard me say, well, I, I hunted all these years and those places were never leased or those leased places were never uh, developed. So there probably is low risk. Low risk is not no risk. You know, those are still leased. They can still be developed, and some percentage of them typically are. It might be two to four percent that end up getting developed, but you don't know where that might be, right? And that could be—it could be any place in the lease, or maybe it's one of those crazy leases that they, you know, the technology changes and they discover all of a sudden something that was never accessible is now accessible, and uh, they bought this land for a buck fifty an acre, and now they develop the whole thing. So. Uh, And then you're not getting a fair, you know, the public's not getting a fair return on that. Um, So that's a kind of a long rambling answer. But I think there are definitely impacts as far as how on the ground management decisions are made when land is leased uh, for oil and gas development versus when you can plan for other multiple uses.
1: I think there's a lot of good points in there. And I, you know, as much as I hate to throw statistics out cause they can be a little wonky, but there's a few here that I think are pretty important to talk about. And, you know, that's basically over the last decade, um, a quarter of all the leases that have happened have been leased under this non-competitive regime. That's almost 3 million acres. Um, and, and one of the big issues with this too, Dave, that we should talk about a little is, some of that is speculative leasing, meaning it's so cheap that the companies can just go get them and, and hold on to them and see, like you mentioned, maybe some technology comes along or maybe something changes. Um, and one of the issues with that is that, like you said, it, it lots of times circumvents other activities on that land. Not that you can't go out there, lots of times you can, but For instance, if there's a migration corridor that we want to do some restoration in, if there's uh, maybe protective designations or other conservation ideas that are out there, it usually circumvents a lot of those things from happening, Um, all while really it was just a speculative thing that did not pay a return uh, for the taxpayer, and, you know, often is not the appropriate regime for those landscapes. Can you talk about a little bit of that, maybe unpack that a little? Yeah,
2: so I'm glad you brought up the speculative piece because the the Mineral Leasing Act and other federal laws that tie into the Mineral Leasing Act really you know, really frown on speculation. I mean, they yeah. really do. I mean, the whole idea is is you're supposed to show uh, you being the BLM is supposed to show that there's high development or at least moderate to high development potential. Uh, and that's the reason for issuing the lease. I mean, that's, that's spelled out in the law, uh, but for lack of resources or lack of want or whatever it is, I don't know the, the reasons behind it. That's not the way that BLM has implemented those provisions. So it, it actually has the, the way that, that BLM has implemented the Mineral Leasing Act and their leasing program has, in, has actually invited speculation. And I want to be clear um, I, th- this is something I want to be clear about because there are absolutely some really good actors out there in the oil and gas world. Right? There are some really top-notch companies doing good, innovative things, trying to be, uh, have as minimal impact on, on, the, on wildlife habitat and investing in conservation and, and really trying to be good partners on the landscape. They're not the ones buying up these acres. They're the ones that are trying to find the places that have the highest development potential. They're the ones spending, you know, 15 to $30,000 an acre when they, when their geologists are saying that place is the next place. We're going to, we're going to generate a bunch of revenue because we're going to pull some oil and gas out of there. Those are the companies that are, that are using the mineral act leasing act the way it was meant to be used. It's, it's some of these really small, non-publicly traded, you know, private, um, small, I even call them to some extent fly by night companies cause they exist for a while and then they just disappear and they'll buy these up. And, and the idea is they'll sit on them for a while, hoping that market conditions will change. And one of the big players will then buy them from them. So they'll buy them up for a buck 50 an acre and sit on them and hope that they're able to show that there's some development potential and convince one of the bigger players to then turn around and, and spend, Twenty bucks an acre on it um, if if they find out that they're not that there is no potential there, maybe they just stop paying their rental fees and let the BLM you know cancel that lease that 's not what the law was intended to do in the first place, and it, and frankly, the public should demand more uh, from its its public re- from these public resources These are finite. Yeah resources. When I say finite resource, I'm not just talking about oil and gas. I mean, the public land itself and the resources, the habitats and, and the values of the public land is a finite resource too. And we should absolutely demand the highest return uh, uh, out of that um, to be for the public good. And we're just not, we're just not getting it.
1: And That's, that's really what we're talking about, Dave. Um, I'm glad you mentioned some of the good actors. Uh, you know, I want to make it clear too, we're not against energy development on public lands. What we're against is irresponsible energy development on public lands. And we believe that this practice and we've have enough evidence that this practice is not an appropriate, appropriate way to develop these lands. And really what we're saying here is, you know, if there's not enough interest when they're, when they're out there on competitive lease sales, then the federal government should wait until there's either sufficient interest or not lease those lands. Uh, Because there's, like we said, there's, there's 3 million acres. And, and one of the other stats I'm aware of is, you know, we've only gotten $4 million out of the last 10 years of these, of these leases uh and, and that's about one-tenth of one percent of the federal government's total leasing revenue. Did you so, say
2: four four million dollars over the course of a
1: decade? Of the last ten years, yeah. So it's yeah. 25% of the lease lands with one-tenth of one percent of the revenue. That those numbers don't add up. They're not fair for the taxpayer, they don't make sense for the BLM to be spending all the time and and energy to get these things prepared. Uh and so Again, irresponsible practice uh, or or not appropriate practice, rather than just saying no leasing anywhere. It's really about uh, this schematic doesn't doesn't make sense.
2: Yeah, and I like your point. Um, th- you know that, I re- and I want to emphasize that again. I like the point you made that we're not anti oil and gas development. I mean, we both love to get after it, you know, hunting and fishing and all the backcountry stuff. We have to get there. We're, dry, we're driving our vehicles there. We're filling up with gas. We're heating our homes. My, my house is heated with natural gas, right? Uh, I, and I, I, frankly, I'd prefer to get that from the United States than some country with no environmental regulations at all, um, you know, that uh, with unstable governments and all sorts of stuff. I'd love to get it here, but I want it to be done the right way. And the thing that, to kind of reemphasize your point, the thing that bothers me is, i don 't want a company to come in and pay dollar fifty an acre to sit on something, hoping that the technology uh, makes that dollar fifty an acre worth a thousand dollars an acre what i 'd rather see is I, I want to continue to see good innovation and, and technology and minim, minimizing um, you know, impacts uh, from oil and gas development and i 'd love that same acreage then. 10 years from now, once the technology says, yeah, there's recoverable oil and gas here, and we now have the technology to get it. And here's how we can get it in a responsible way. Now put that acres, those acres up for bid. And instead of getting $1.50 an acre, maybe you get $5,000 an acre. Or maybe the technology just doesn't come along because frankly, there are no resources there, <laughs> there developable resources there to begin with. And then you just don't, never lease that, right? I mean, it, it yeah. seems like a pretty simple concept. Lease the acres that have the highest potential of development and get the most return out of that and don't lease the other stuff because you're not getting any return and you're not going to get any royalties off of it and you're just, you're, you're tying up this land to pre- prevent it from being managed for other uses.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, Dave. I think You know, one of the other things is, as we mentioned it in the beginning, the BLM has a multiple use mandate. They've got to manage for a lot of different things. Um, and you know, we've seen the recreation economy explode. We know the contributions of the hunting and fishing community out on these lands. Um, you know, one of the things that this does is is takes away the time and the resources of, of limited BLM staff for really no return. Uh, While You know, there's often things like resource management plans, which we've discussed a little bit on a previous podcast. Those are the plans that determine, you know, the different management schemes in different parts of a BLM field office. For instance, those often will take five years to develop and be 25, 30 years between when they do it yet technology is changing almost every day. Uh, there's lots of different, uh, values that are consistent uh, are continually illuminated by conservation interest by hunters and anglers and other folks it, it really makes sense for the blm to spend equal amounts of time on all of this um and when when things like this happen and they have to take lots of time and, and resources to to essentially work on things that aren't going to give any return and may not ever be developed at all uh that's where Another way that this just, it really doesn't make a lot of sense and, and really doesn't fulfill that multiple use mandate.
2: Yeah, And it could actually be a money loser. I mean, you say not much money and, and we don't know this yet. I, I haven't seen any data to support this, so I'm not making a, an assertion that this is the case, but it's at least plausible that if you were to do an audit on the BLM, on the amount of time that it, that they work on these non-competitive leases, going through the, the nomination process, the review, you know, all that sort of stuff, the bid going through the, the bidding process they don't sell so they have to then they go and and they're available non-competitively for two years and they have to keep up with the administration of that then they're then they end up being leased and they have to annually deal with the the rental fees and then if they're not paid they have to cancel and then they might get re-nominated and you might go through the same cycle multiple times the administration the administrative cost of doing all of that you may find that that's actually more than the revenue that you're bringing in I, it's something I, I, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but the revenue being brought in is so low, uh, that it's at least plausible that this is a money loser.
1: Quite likely. Uh, yeah.
2: Which, you know, for those folks out there that are like me, you know, I've, I'm always, I'm kind of like this, I'm a small government guy, uh, like. And, and- you're really thrifty. And I'm super thrifty. Thrifty is a nice way to put it. I'm just yeah, super cheap, super cheap. Thrifty. Cheap is yeah, cheap is the way that everybody else would put it. Is cheap, uh, you know. But I think it's irresponsible fiscal management to be running a program that might be losing money um, for and allowing others to actually make money for no reason at the expense of the general public uh, that owns the resource so it kind of bothers me
1: yeah so ultimately i mean i really think and and i know nwf this is what we're working for we're, we're trying to really look at ending this pro- practice you know to really just if if leases aren't uh bought in the competitive auction process they should be removed uh from from being available um, it, it's a pretty simple solution, right? It, it's, it, it gets rid of the speculative leasing, speculative leasing, excuse me. Uh, it, it daylights a lot of this, you know, it's a real open, obvious process. It reduces costs. Uh, it, you know, it, it reduces opportunity costs, meaning the BLM can, can focus on other things, uh, not waste time and energy on this. So it, it's not, as far as a solution, in my mind, it's not that complicated, right? Just, just stop doing this bad practice. Um, and really that's what Senator Tester's bill is looking, is looking to do.
2: And it really shouldn't be that controversial. It will be right. It will be. Yeah. But, it but it really shouldn't be that controversial because we're talking about such little revenue and, it's not a practice that was really contemplated by the Mineral Leasing Act in the first place. It's it's just it's good fiscal policy to to get rid of this. It's good uh, environmental policy to get rid of this. Uh, it, it's hard to justify in my mind. It's really hard to justify why we have the practice in the first place. Um, yeah, you know because the the speculative purchases actually don't. It's one thing if, if you're allowing, I don't even know if it's one thing, to, I don't even know if this is true, but it, it, if you were allowing speculation and that speculation actually turned to, develop, to, develop, to development uh, and you got a bunch of royalty payments off of that, uh, then it might be even more controversial. But something like 2 to 3% of these acres are ever developed. I mean, it's an exceptionally low number of these non-competitive leases that are ever actually Developed in some way, and the other thing I'd, I'd, I'd say is, I know it could be. You know, this is a weird time right now to be talking about any kind of reform in oil and gas leasing practices. Right? It's a weird time because we saw oil and gas, we saw oil trade for negative just a couple months ago. You know, the industry is getting hammered hard. People are losing jobs. Companies are going are going if they haven't yet. I mean, there's going to be companies There'll be companies that go bankrupt over all of this. And some might say, well, it's a little insensitive to be advocating for these types of changes at this time because of what what's going on in the industry. But you know what? Those folks in the that are working in the industry, I mean, they're not working on these lands, right? They're, these lands aren't aren't being developed. There's no prospect of them of them being developed. You know, the the issues that they're dealing with are. Are related to other projects, and the and the companies that are being impacted by this really, you know, it's not the speculative speculative ones. You know, they don't have a an an army of of people out in the f- working in oil fields right now, um, you know, working on pipelines, working on the infrastructure. They don't have that. They're sitting on these uh, what they view these assets, hoping to sell them to somebody. It, it, it's 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 just different, right? It's different. Um, And it's not a call, to be clear, it's not a call to end all leasing. You know, this is to end a bad leasing practice. That the act, like I said, the act didn't contemplate having in the first place. It's just a bad leasing practice.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, Dave. And, you know, especially in the West, we know well. Uh, there's a minimum barrel price for oil. There's a minimum price for gas that that has to be achieved in order for these lands to be developed. We're far, far below that. So why in the heck would a company go out to a place that they don't believe clearly has that much potential, or else they they would have bid on it at a high price or a higher price and and develop that right now in the current climate? They would. It's just not realistic. so why lock it up in that scheme and, and take the time and energy and resources to to do the administrative process that it takes to get those develop uh, get those ready for sale when we know that's not going to happen. It's even more reason not to do it. Um, I think you know we're transition let's transition a little bit because Senator Cortez Masso out in Nevada has another bill looks a little bit at this, at this process as well, a little bit differently. It's more about the, the low or no potential leases. And and that means like what we've talked about, one of the reasons that, that we're seeing a non-competitive minimum bid type system is because there is low or no potential uh, sometimes. So her bill is called the Inspective Leasing Act. And uh, it, it's really about curbing some of these same things. And maybe you can, help me digest a little bit of the difference and, and maybe explain to our listeners a little bit more about the uh, low or no potential issue. Yeah. So,
2: and, and uh, here, here's maybe a simple way to put it. The non-competitive, these acres that are selling for dollar an acre that weren't bid on they're they're low and no potential acres. So, Low and no potential includes non-competitive, but it can include other things as well. Acres that are bid on in the two to $5 an acre range likely fall in that low to no potential of development. They're bid on, but there's still, the likelihood of development is still exceptionally low. Really what I view this bill as doing is, and, and I don't know if it's stated this way in the bill, but this is, so this is my interpretation of it. I view this bill as largely reinterpreting the Mineral Leasing Act, or reclarifying, and saying, "Mineral Leasing Act, BLM, you were supposed, you weren't supposed to lease things unless there was potential. Now we're going to hold your feet to the fire. Now we're going to pass a law that explains exactly what that means, that you have to do an analysis to show that there's at least moderate to high potential of development before you offer acres." for lease, right? That's big picture. That's what this bill does with some exceptions, right? Like it's a,
1: it's a good opportunity to throw a little, little interlude there, Dave. I mean, one of the things that bill is aimed at doing is, is having the BLM more regularly assess potential. A lot of these places they've been sitting there forever since the BLM or anybody else has said, here's what we think is under the, under the ground there. Here's where we think the potential is. And so, boy, with technology and and the opportunity to learn things on a, you know, almost every few five years, whatever the number is, we have something new that can really hone in on, on things a little bit better. So that's something I know, I think all of us would like to know, right? I mean, for conservation purposes, one of the things we like to do a lot is figure out who values what where. And then when we know that, it's easier to go to the players, it's easier to think about collaboration, uh, try to get value for everybody and do and do solid negotiation. So updating that in and of itself has a lot of value and uh, sorry to interrupt you there, but I think you touched on it a little bit. And and that's one of the things I see is highly valuable in, in Senator Cortez Masto's bill.
2: Yeah, I agree. I also like the the piece if i'm remembering right and correct me if i'm not uh but it also mandates that these leases be sold for fair market value a determination of what fair market value is and perhaps two dollars an acre might not be fair market value you know maybe it's something higher i mean that that two dollars an acre is a number that was set decades ago and hasn't been adjusted this minimum bid uh, you know, if yeah it doesn 't reflect today 's market it it 's never been adjusted for inflation and right? it it doesn't it doesn 't reflect the market never been adjusted for inflation so you're you're likely getting thing you 're getting this acreage well below what the what fair market value really should be um When you're on the low end of the bidding, obviously these bids can go astronomically high. Uh, And I know that there's, there's a a school of thought out there that says, well, the fair market is whatever the market will bear. And if the market will bear $2 an acre, that's the fair market for it, right? Yeah. But we kind of manipulated that by establishing a a base in statute of $2 an acre um, that, that you know borderlines on speculative in some instances because it is still so cheap right, that they, you know you're not really I don't know that it truly is fair market um anyway it's, that's a that's another piece of that bill is is making sure that that the public gets a fair return on on their assets
1: yeah, and I think uh, one of the reasons uh, Senator Cortez Masto introduced that bill really is because Nevada is the poster child of low or no potential leasing. It's largely known that there's not very much potential for oil and gas in in Nevada. Yet there's hundreds of thousands of acres leased uh, that just sit there, uh, like what we've talked about. And I think you know, obviously being her home state she wanted to take a closer look at that. And and I think she probably figured out, wow, that happens in a lot of places. You know, Montana has quite a bit of this as well. Um, And, and it's, it's really just something that people should understand a little bit more mainly because of the scope and scale. I mean, we're talking, you know, we we talked about some real acreage here, 3 million acres. That's, that's no small chunk. It's bigger than, bigger than a few States, in the Eastern seaboard. So this is a lot of land, a lot of important places,
2: I agree. Um, Can I tell you kind of an interesting side? This is a sort of a tangent. Can I take a a little tangent? We love tangents.
1: Perfect. Side stories.
2: So this is a little tangent, but uh, you know, I was mentioning that the Mineral Leasing Act that the BLM is supposed to show that there's uh, potential for development before. Before leasing, the bidder is also supposed to, under that mineral leasing act. The bidder is also also supposed to show that that they intend to develop that land, right? So that's that's another piece of this is that that they're supposed to show that they're to develop that land. Um, these speculators arguably like how do they how do they show a true intent to develop that land of yeah if the price changes and I can sell this to somebody that actually can develop it we'll make sure to get this developed um, and that's that's good enough uh, the reason I mentioned that is because actually back in two thousand and eight there were there were uh, there are a series of acres that were put up for bid near arches and Canyonlands national parks in Utah. And there was litigation around, uh, the proposal. Um, and my memory serves me correct. The litigation hadn't quite resolved and the parcels were going up for bid. And there was one student or at least a former student from, I think university of Utah that was, uh, really passionate about the impacts that these leases might have on, on areas around the national parks that were used by recreators of all kinds and what could happen if these leases are sold and ultimately developed. So he actually went and, and at this time, the bids were in person and you're you given a paddle and you had a you know, bidding process in a room. And he started by bidding people up. He just, you just know As the bids were going, he'd just try and raise the price of all the leases to try and make sure that that the leases were selling for a higher dollar amount. Yeah, remember this. And then at some point he said, he, he, he just got so frustrated that they were still being sold. And so he just started outbidding everybody and he bid on all of these leases and outbid all the oil and gas companies on all of these leases. Well, after the auction's over if for any of you that go to an auction, you, know, you, you bid on something, then you got to pay for it. <laughs> And he didn't have the money to pay for it and he obviously never had the intent to develop it and he was prosecuted for for violating the law and sentenced to 2 years in prison served 21 months uh for it so it, it made an example out of him of through the book at him through the book at him trying to make an example of you know so i just want to make it clear that you know you or i couldn't go in and bid on these yeah. and and get a bid or or and you know, even if we had the money, we couldn't bid on them and buy them. And then with no intent to develop. So why are some of these companies that their only intent is to sit on them and hopefully sell them to somebody that could develop? Why should they be allowed to bid on these? Why should, or why should they be allowed to come in and buy these, these leases? Um, I, you know... I don't want to call it a true apples to apples comparison because they are at the end of the day, they are trying to figure out a way to get them developed sitting on. them, hoping to sell them to somebody that'll, that'll put a well on. Um, But a lot of the speculation, like those companies don't actually intend to develop it themselves. They just want to figure out a way to make money by selling it to somebody else.
1: The definition of speculative. Right.
2: Yep. Right. Uh, anyway, I just I provide that example as a little little example of uh, how seriously they take it. If if you actually don't intend to develop it, I mean they they threw the book at this guy. Uh, yeah, I
1: appreciate that. That's a yeah. good example. Let's let's talk a little bit about you know as we're getting close to wrapping up here, you know how the sporting community should look at this, perhaps what they should be advocating for, and I'll, I'll start that by saying. there's a group of about 15 different sporting conservation organizations that sent a letter uh, yesterday to Senator Tester supporting uh, the idea of, of, you know, reforming this issue, really. Um, Lots of them from Montana, his home state. A few others from Nevada, New Mexico, some of the really uh, either developed, developed states or or ones like Nevada, as we mentioned, that have a lot of speculative leasing uh, across their landscape. Um, and really, you know, in full support that the idea that, you know, non-competitive leasing should really be ended. It, it just doesn't make sense for a lot of the reasons we've talked about. But, you know, it, it, one of the things that we try to do, Dave, and you know, this is is, you know, make it applicable and accessible for average Joe or Jane sports person, right? How, how can they think about this issue? And this one is, it's pretty in the weeds in a lot of ways, you know, who's going to monitor oil and gas lease sales across all these different field offices and, and so on. But let's talk a little bit about some of the simple ways you think people can, can look at this stuff and perhaps have an impact in the positive way and, and perhaps, you know, help safeguard our sporting heritage on these lands.
2: Yeah. So I'll start with what I view as one of the simplest things somebody can do. Look, these there are sporting organizations at, at the local level and, and at the national level and at the regional level that have people that are hired to, to know this stuff, to, to know the weeds. You know, to get into the weeds and to understand the nuances and to build relationships with uh, policymakers and to try, try and help influence these decisions. The first thing, this is a, you know, sort of a selfish plug, I guess, in a way, the first thing that you can do is, is support those organizations and plug in with those organizations because we all live, you know, we all have jobs. We all lives are busy. We, I get it. It's hard to dedicate a lot of time to this. And, and sometimes we have to, we have to turn over uh, that investment of time into other people that are doing that work for a living. And so whether it's NWF or whether it's another organization that that's doing this, I'd say, you know, find one of those organizations that, uh, you know, that meshes with, with your, you know, with you personally, your ideologies personally and join uh, because that's a really effective tool, uh, you know, that can, you can leverage a lot of voices that way. Uh, it's a very minimal financial investment and it's a very minimal time investment. You can invest as little, as much time as you want, but know that as long as you're joining an organization, you, you uh you jive with um you know uh from from a fundamental level on your ideologies they got your back right and so that's the at least i don't know what you think aaron but that's my first that's i was viewed as for for the hunting community that's the first place you should look for some of these these hunting organizations representing your
1: interests yeah it's really a a great personal investment in a lot of ways, right? You pay your 25, $35 whatever membership and you have in most cases, a handful of professionals out there watching this stuff, looking at this stuff, conveying information, breaking it down to to terms you can understand. Um, we try to do it all the time. I know we have a lot of great partners in the the sporting conservation world and beyond that do it as well that we work with. Uh, so yeah, I, I would totally agree with you. Go spend your 35 bucks. Um, cheaper than a lot of things. It's a small way you can contribute and and you'll get good information. And I guess I'll say too, Dave, uh, one of the things we'll do in the show notes is uh, in this this report I mentioned earlier, we'll, we'll link to that report, but at the end it talks about four different ways hunters can get engaged. One of them is obviously what Dave just said, but it also has some links to you know the BLM energy leasing program, so you can go there see what's see what's being leased. I know it's tough for for folks to follow that kind of stuff. Um, and then one of the other really good ones I think Dave is getting to know your local game wardens, your local managers. Um, they're all regular folks, great great people. Almost all of them. I've I've rarely found one of these folks who wasn't willing to talk. Wasn't passionate about conservation and wildlife, uh, and they're just they're your friends, neighbors to live in your town. Uh, you can go talk to them, uh, hear what they have to say about it, get good information, uh, and and it's it's also just good, right? You learn more about the landscape, you learn about where animals are. It, it's a good reason to do that. Well, plus and you
2: it, also build. Sorry to interrupt, no, but you no build worries. these uh, be, these relationships that you can use in other way other ways. Like, yeah, I get these hankerings to hunt in times of the year where there aren't any, there's nothing open to hunt. Uh, and I'm like, well, what am I going to do? Well, one of the things I actually like to do is hunt Eurasian collared doves. This is one good. of these tangent tangents I was talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Eurasian do- colored doves in Wyoming, well, all over the country, they're an invasive species. They're not native to the United States. Um, yeah, they're invasive uh, and they're spreading all over the country. And a lot no of, state, no a season. lot of States have no season, no limit, no license. I mean, nothing. It's they just want them eradicated. Well, truth be told, they're delicious. Um, and they have about twice as much meat as a morning dove. They're real good. Uh, and, you know, they reproduce two or three times a year, uh, a, a season. So they're they're a fast reproducer. What I do, because I might go out in July to, to shoot some collared doves, I will call up my local game warden and say, hey, you might get some calls today about a guy out shooting birds. That's um, me just giving you a heads up so you don't have to make the trip out,
1: you know, and they actually appreciates that, <laughs> you know, so it's a good built- time for a casting blast too. take your fishing rod and see if there's any ponds or streams or something you might be able to catch fish.
2: Yeah. Cause sometimes these wardens live so far away that, you know, they get these calls and they have to respond to something. And, you know, so it was that that's just me like calling them up saying, I don't want to have to, you know, I don't want you to have to drive, you know, hour and 45 minutes round trip on your day off. Uh, which there's no such thing as a day off for wardens really, but don't want you to have to do that because you're getting reports of some guy out there shooting birds. Uh, It's me. Here's what I'm doing. And usually when I say that, he's like, awesome, good luck. I hope you get a bunch.
1: Uh, (laughs) What else, Dave, do you have any other advice as far as, you know, average Joe or Jane, how how would they engage in this?
2: Um, You know, I think you mentioned the BLM, Uh, you know, one thing there there is an opportunity to do is there's always an opportunity for the public to weigh in on these lease sales. Lease sales, and I don't think we ever mentioned this, lease sales happen quarterly. So there, there yeah, could be a could lease only- sale in your state quarterly or in a state that you hunt in uh, or fish in quarterly. And that's going to get posted uh, and there's going to be an opportunity to comment on those. <laughs> It, you know that's a place to engage and make make your thoughts known is through that commenting process right uh, i know some people think that comments don't matter and sometimes we feel the same way uh, but it's the process we have uh, and and so you can do that and you don't have to be a resident of the state that where it's happening to do it it's i mean it's it's federal it's a federal resource it's everybody's everybody has the opportunity to, to weigh in and comment on on these so that's one other place you know, what other thing you can do.
1: Yeah. I think Dave, with that, it's good to mention, you know, what the managers need and what they appreciate. I know from my experience is authentic stories. People have been out there on the land, especially, you know, the, the good thing about hunters and anglers and what makes us so in tune with a lot of this stuff is we're often visiting these landscapes, you know, year after year observing changes, how wildlife's using it. Um, the BLM appreciates that. You know, they get a lot of form letters, things where people are just kind of repeating. But folks who've actually been out there can talk about real life experience, share what it means to their family, so on. They really like those. They take those to heart. Um, I've seen at least some examples of that being true. Uh, so I, I would really, I would really implore folks to, to not only say what they want as far as management, but tell their stories and tell them why, tell them why that's so important to them to have these landscapes healthy and intact.
2: Yeah. And and, and along those lines, you can tell your stories in a lot of different ways. You can write letters to the editor too, to your local newspaper or a regional newspaper. Uh, Folks at BLM are going to read those. They're going to see those, Uh, you know, other things you can do weigh in with your County commissioner, contact the local County commissioners, Uh, contact your governor's office, you know, because they might weigh in on some of these, and I can speak from experience because I used to work in a governor's office. I can speak from experience that when, when citizens weigh in on something like that and say, "Hey, there shouldn't be leasing here," you know, I can, I know for a fact. I know you know this, Aaron, that, that when I was with a governor, we actually uh, asked for the BLM to defer leasing in places that were important for migration corridors or had other wildlife values. And, and, and we just felt like there shouldn't be leasing there. Um, and they listen, enough people weigh in, they listen, your, your elected officials do listen and they'll in turn reach out to the BLM. And that, the voice of your Governor or county commissioners or others uh, th- those elected officials weighing in with the BLM can be pretty darn impactful
1: the the smart, pragmatic ones at least like your former former boss governor mead who <laughs> who did listen and, and knew this re- knew this issue and knew these issues and and how great the resources were in your state as, as well and, and knew it intimately, so understood very well. I think, yeah he, uh, he
2: had a great mindset, by the way. He had a great mindset, so uh, not to plug my old boss too much here.
1: Uh, <laughs> Dave yeah, just guess, had him on, his, on a podcast recently too, so you can go hear, Dave. You know, yeah, go to the more good stuff about his former boss.
2: I, I'm, I'm just a huge fan of the guy. <laughs> um, yeah, he, yeah, he recognizes the need for energy development, and he really would prefer to see energy development the United in the U.S versus other places as well. but he says, not at the expense of everything else. you know, we, It has to be done in an environmentally responsible way uh, because you know, you know, we want our kids and our grandkids to be able to experience the same things that our parents experienced or that we're experiencing. Um, and and you know, he had this saying that he used a lot, of, a lot, and maybe I'll start stealing it, but it, it came from his grandfather, who is a former governor of the state as well. But from a, a conservation standpoint, he says, where you see one blade of grass... Leave too, you know. His mindset is you just try and leave the place better than you found it. Um, we need to have some development, but we got to do it in the responsible and in the right way. And he, there were places in the state that he just made a decision. He said, "Look, this, there are values here that we just can't jeopardize through development, and we don't have the technology right now, even with, uh, with." stipulations we just don't have putting a stipulations on permits we don't have the ability to to prevent irreversible resource damage in these places and so he was trying to strike yeah. that balance and i think you know that's what we always you know you and i you know nwf
1: tries to strike that balance too yeah i think we're we're pretty well in line with with how he thinks and you know we talked about it before we're not against energy development we want to see it done right we want to see it done in a way that that holds these values in perpetuity i you know i'm a Wyoming native myself i have family and friends in, in energy development we don't want to shut down the industry and we don't we don't want that to be what people take from this uh, there's just there's just good ways and bad ways to to do all kinds of practices and and we've illuminated some of the ones that don't make sense and we're happy that some of our leaders are are taking some steps to help, uh, reform those and, and create the most responsible situation and the the best and most fair return for the taxpayers. Um, as we wrap up, Dave, I want to say one more thing folks should do and for folks who listen to this podcast or know me. One of the things I always say is, you know, with, with the great privilege we have living in the West and living in this country where we have, ample opportunity uh, comes huge obligation and and more and more now to get engaged and and stay engaged and tell other people and uh, you know if we don't appropriately pay attention to these things and safeguard our heritage boy it's going to be a rough future for our kids and our grandkids so i would really implore folks to get engaged um, and get your fellow hunters and anglers engaged Uh, it's a fun thing to do to host a quick get-together Maybe provide 10 minutes of, hey, this is an issue we should all know about as hunters and anglers and as our sporting community. Tell them a little bit about this stuff. Just plant those seeds in their mind so they know how to get engaged. I think that's one of the easiest ways to to really make a big difference. Um, you know, some of these rural places that these field offices are, for instance, they may get just a handful of comments and it may appear that nobody really cares. Uh, so if you can get five or 10 people engaged on these type of things, it might really make a big difference. Um, and it'll just be better for everyone, know, knowing more about the resource, knowing more about how things work. So I would implore folks to do that, take that obligation seriously and and get folks engage that, you know, the,
2: the best uh, army, the best army is an educated army, right? Yep. You, if you come armed with, with r- r- rational facts and, uh, you know, an understanding of the issue and you're not just spewing hyperbole and you're offering l- real solutions that are manageable solutions and reasonable, you know, they're real reasonable and manageable solutions. Uh, you're going to have a seat at the table. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what we need as a, as a collective group in the sporting community is you know, we, we need our seat at that table and it's going to take, we're small, we're we're a small minority in this country with less than 5% of us of citizens in the country hunt. We want to have that, that outsized influence, right? We want to be able to have that impact. We got to come at it educated. Um, we can't be, that's that's one thing I always emphasize is we can't just, it can't be sound bites and hyper, hyperbole. We got to have, have facts and reason to back it up too, which is why, you know, this podcast that you're doing is so great because it gets, you know, it helps educate people about about these issues and, and arm them to be effective advocates and really engage. And so I hope people are listening uh, and soaking up this information and, and hopefully hopefully, you know agreeing with some of it, uh, but uh, but find ways to engage once you, once you get a better understanding of it fact check us i don 't care fact check us you know I, I do that all the time i 'm a lawyer by training, so i 'm constantly in fact checking mode. I want to get it all right um, we should then that 's what we should want, and then i 'm kind of rambling on, but' it's, yeah, I think that 's important that kind of stuff 's important.
1: It is. And uh, I should mention, too, just as we were talking, uh, Senator Tester did announce that he is going to introduce this bill that we mentioned. It'll be called the Leasing Market Efficiency Act. Uh, So by the time you you all hear this podcast, uh, he will have done this announcement. And I think we'll see this bill next week. Uh, so today is the 16th and I think, uh, the week of the, uh, 20th, we'll see that bill. So take a look f- for that. Um, and, and I'm also, in, a, in the show notes, we're going to link a handful of things. Um, one is going to be Dave, Nephi, and Mike's esteemed podcast, The Your Mountain Podcast. Love it. Uh, love it.
2: <laughs> Big, bold letters. Link it hard. Big, bold letters.
1: <laughs> these guys these guys are some of the sharpest minds out there uh, pulling apart policy and, and, and giving it to folks in a way that they can understand. Uh, I've often, I'll admit, when I had a little bit of trouble you know deciphering one of these issues i'll go listen because they often are really timely if something comes out they'll they'll do a podcast on it and, and and they just are experts in this place so it's good to good to take a look um i'll also link uh, we'll have a press release about this bill uh senator tester will have a press release we'll put those in there and we'll see if we can get a link directly to that bill and the and the cortez masto bill we mentioned And then last, the report that I mentioned that we released uh, in April that talks a bit about some of these issues and and breaks apart a few different examples and has some hunter uh, testimonials, if you will, about how it's impacted them and what they care about on those landscapes. So uh, you get to see kind of how average Joe and Jane are thinking about that. Uh, With that, Dave, we always give the opportunity to uh, leave folks with any parting shots. Uh, so any, any words of wisdom or, or, you know, non-wisdom that you want to throw at us before, before we go here. And I, okay,
2: this is totally, can it be a tangential, like a, not related to the subject we were talking about?
1: Oh, sure. We'll give you, we'll give you carte blanche today.
2: Awesome. So I'm going to put a plug in. It's going back when I said, one of the ways you get involved is by joining, uh, some of these conservation organizations, um, uh, I'm going to put a plug in right now and say, if you have the means to do it, there's never been a better time than now to, to donate a little bit of money to one of these organizations, you know, help them. Times are really tough right now. Uh, for a lot of people, uh, times are tough for your local sporting organizations too. They need your help more than ever. Um, you know, they're, they're doing Good work. They're doing hard work. They're doing needed work, um, but you know they need help to be able to do that. And so, uh, that's one thing I'd say. And I'd mention this year because of the CARES Act that was passed in Congress, the the Relief Act uh, for COVID. You can you can take a tax deduction again on those donations up to to the first two or three hundred dollars is will be will be deductible which hasn't been the case uh, over the past couple of years so uh, great opportunity to do it that's my parting shot support support conservation support conservation in your in your local sporting organizations
1: yeah i appreciate that dave and I'll add to it a little. One of the things Dave's talking about, you know, many of these organizations do banquets every year or some sort of a fundraiser, which, you know, entails gathering a lot of their members and supporters. Those obviously haven't happened. So often those are forty, fifty thousand $50,000, something, something big for, especially the smaller organizations uh, that haven't happened this year. So they're really, they're really needing that right now. And uh, you know, it's important to, to continue to do conservation even in tough times, uh, because we will rebound from this. Energy prices will rebound. People will be back out there on these landscapes. Actually, there's <laughs> there's more people on the landscapes right now. The public lands probably than there was before. Holy it's smokes! One of the yeah. Can do. Uh, but the, more than ever, wildlife uh, these landscapes need taken care of. So so do that. Uh, my parting shot will be. One other thing, and that is uh, we we did a podcast on the Great American Outdoors Act. And so did Dave, by the way, in, in your mountain. So take a look at both of those. That that bill uh, will be up in the House, and we hope it will pass the House next week. I think it's Wednesday, Dave. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, 22nd.
1: Yeah, next week. And hopefully it will get through the House, and uh, the president has indicated he will sign it. And uh, we will be looking for one of the we will be looking at one of the most significant conservation wins we've seen in a really long time. We'll get uh, a bunch of money to go help uh, work on our parks, the the backlog of maintenance, you know, toilets, culverts, roads, trails, all those kind of things that severely need and deserve a little bit of help. Um, and we'll get permanent funding in the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which. Touches everybody very deeply, even if they don't know it. I was, uh, as a little small anecdote, I was at my son's baseball game two nights ago, and noticed on the the little shed where you go in and turn on the lights for the baseball field, a small circular emblem, and I walked over and took a look at it, and it said this fun this project funded by the land and water conservation fund so from baseball fields to bathrooms to boat put-ins to you know access and wildlife habitat one of the most (laughs) successful programs there's ever been uh, in conservation 54 year old program 55 almost now uh, and and we could see the final hurdle in congress next week we believe we will so go tell your congress person that you you care about that that program and, and help us get us across the finish line.
2: Do I have this fact right? Every county in America has been touched by
1: LWCF. I believe so. I've heard that as well. And uh, uh, when I looked up my county, I could believe it because there was many more projects than I really would have ever thought.
2: Yeah. So the point is you've been impacted by it and you may not even know it, but you've been impacted, you meaning everybody listening. You've been impacted by it and you might not even know it. Big deal. It's a, this is a generational deal. This, this vote next week, this is a once in a generation kind of, uh, kind of bill for, for folks that value, uh, the outdoors and public lands. This just doesn't happen. Things like this just don't happen very often. It's a big deal.
1: So get on the phone with your congressperson and, uh, let them know they need to vote for that. Uh, and hopefully we will have something to celebrate again here soon. With that, Dave, I'll bid you farewell. I appreciate it. It's always fun to talk to you. Your knowledge and an and easygoing sense of humor and, and demeanor are, are fun to talk with. And I uh, appreciate all your help. And thanks for, thanks for helping out NWF Outdoors podcast.
2: Appreciate you having me. Really had a great time. Look forward to maybe doing it again someday. Maybe we'll have to have you on the Your Mountain Podcast someday. Oh, wow. will be moving on up
1: then. Bo, really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. You bet. We are NWF Outdoors.